My personal mission is to disrupt mainstream space with Hawaiian knowledge. She has eight kids and eight businesses. And I really wanted to sit at the table of businesses and decision makers that were designing Hawaii for the next generation. If you want to do business here in Hawaii, you have a responsibility to integrate the community. The more that you invest in community and culture, the better the ROI. Her life took a turn while pursuing a PhD. If not for that La'o Lapa'o class and that firekeeper and that wisdom that he shared with us, my life might have been like completely different. My dad was a pure Hawaiian fisherman. He didn't really have anything to give me upon his passing, but really the gift was this notion, make magic. And he would tell me that I was magic. And so that term, make magic, that you saw us tell me became a huge part of my adult life. The decisions that we make today, we're making it for seven generations. Right. So I feel like I'm just standing in the space and being ready and that things are opening up. It's like I'm buying a canoe and I'm like, there's no way we can afford a canoe right now. But he could see the island, right? Like navigators do. And 900 kids alone this summer were sailing on that canoe. One of the agreements was that if any child in our family needed a home or was going to be institutionalized, that they would be in our home. And I feel like if every local family here had a similar understanding of kuleana responsibility for ohana, that we wouldn't actually have a foster care system in Hawaii anymore. The night he passed, it was like the moon came to get him. I said, it's your turn to make magic. He took his last breath and he left with our ancestors, I know for sure. Greater Good Radio. Connect, learn, heal and grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Today's guest is Malia Kaihui, a native Hawaiian entrepreneur, educator, and cultural practitioner. She's the mother of eight kids. Her husband is a world champion surfer, and they run a nonprofit together, as well as eight other businesses. Malia is a incredibly special person that as you watch this or listen to it will really get a feel for the energy and as she calls it magic that runs through her veins through her ancestral line and through everything that she does the way that malia can weave our land our culture business family and things that are meaningful together is in a way that i have not necessarily experienced before this has been one of the most meaningful conversations that i've had on this show and i hope that you enjoy it as well. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Malia, when people ask you, you know, who are you? How do you <laughs> explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's not really an easy question for me to answer, but I would answer that in a Hawaiian way. I would say that I'm the daughter of Pamela Mahelani Schleif and Gary Dennis Ka'aihue. That my kula ivi is in Waohinu on Hawaii Island. That my onehanao, the place of my birth, my birth sands, are in Hilo. And that I live with my husband in the community that he grew up in, in Makahanao, which is our home and where we're raising our ohana. And I'm a mom of eight. And so that's a very big part of my life. And then I'm a serial entrepreneur. And I have a love for community and culture and being able to amplify Anything in those spaces really excites me. You know what's interesting to me is that when I ask, who are you, then you say your ancestry first, your mm -hmm. place, and then your family. And then it's like your vocation after that. Yeah. Whereas a lot of times people will say, oh, I'm a 
doctor, I'm a lawyer, or so on. You know, here in Hawaii, it's like, who are you and where are you from? What high school did you graduate from, right? So we're always trying to like place people in our larger island family. And so I think that's a very much a part of our island culture is to share where you're from and, you know, who your ohana is. And then it allows us to connect with other people. And yeah. when people ask you, what do you do? Then what do you say? Normally, I say I'm a mom of eight and they're like, oh, that's amazing. You're a stay-at-home mom. And I'm like, well, not really. But yeah, it is amazing. It's really hard to explain what I do. My husband's always like, what exactly do you do? But I think by now he knows that I just love to get back to community and culture. And I initially thought that would happen through my work as an academic and at the University of Hawaii in teaching. I thought teaching would be the pathway for me to really raise up the next generation of leaders and thinkers in Hawaii. And I found myself at the university. It wasn't what I expected. And I didn't feel like I was having impact that I could potentially have in community. And so I had this amazing opportunity to move into private sector. And what I found in private sector was that I was able to move capital into community. And when I think about capital, I think about vai or anything that provides wealth. So resources and resource management in any way, not just capital in terms of cash, but that I can move capital into community much, much faster and much more directly. So I kind of fell in love with the model of being an entrepreneur. And so since then, I've created eight businesses. I've had the opportunity to really play in all of these industries. I have no training to be in, including business. I have no business training. Everything is I've learned through my mentors and my partnerships in launching businesses. But everything from architecture to archaeology to publication to film production. I mean, these are the things that I get to do on a daily basis now in different companies that I own. And really the goal though is the same. My mission is the same, which is to disrupt mainstream space with Hawaiian knowledge. And so it doesn't really matter what industry that I'm working in in any particular meeting or day, but I really want to bring Hawaiian knowledge to the forefront and use that to solve the problems that are facing ourselves, our children, and really the next generation of people that will call Hawaii home. You want to instill Hawaiian? My personal mission is to disrupt mainstream spaces with Hawaiian knowledge. Can you share like an example or story? There's so many awesome stories. And, you know, that vision really came to me after working from the University of Hawaii. I got my PhD in political science there and was teaching there. But I really felt like we had so many brilliant people at UH, especially in the Hawaiian Studies Department, through the Political Science Department working to really amplify culture and community in Hawaii to reconcile all the things that have happened in the past and just these amazing, brilliant minds. But I often felt like they were marginalized or in marginal spaces and not really allowed to be in mainstream spaces. And I really wanted to sit at the table of businesses and decision makers that were designing Hawaii for the next generation. And oftentimes academics are put in a certain space and not allowed to be at those tables. And actually, when I got to those tables, I found out that there really weren't many Hawaiians at those tables at all. And I really wanted to be a part of that mainstream space talking about what Hawaii is going to look like, feel like for generations to come. So that's kind of the background on how I got to what my personal vision is and all of the work that I do is based around. One example of that might look like, you know, the international marketplace. So the international marketplace went through not just a master planning process, but a renovation, but it was really like an overhaul of the entire property. And many people love the international marketplace, like my tutu, 
has memories of growing up in Waikiki and running around, you know, the shoreline and then going into the kitschy village type architectural commercial space of the international marketplace. Unfortunately, like my whole lifetime, there wasn't a lot of reinvestment into that space. So it had kind of, you know, took a downturn and was struggling. But what many people don't know is that that was once the home of King Luna Lilo and was once the property of Queen Emma. Luna Lilo, you know, gave the property to Emma. And Queen Emma spent a lot of time there writing. She created music there. Queen Emma is such like a badass in Hawaiian history. Like I always am shocked that we don't learn more about these amazing heroes that are a part of who we are as island people and people that love Hawaii home. But, you know, she was like the Beyonce of her time, creating music and having concerts. And she was like the Michelle Obama, like running for politics and challenging policy and being at the forefront of the legislature. I mean, she was all these things in one person. And so this was really her aina. And this land is called Kaluokau, and it's named after a star line in a constellation in the sky that our navigators use to sell our va'a. And now the property is owned by Queen Emmeline Company, which is, you know, an organization that funds our largest hospital system here in Hawaii and is a trauma center of the Pacific. And that hospital came out of a vision that her and her husband had to really create public health care for all of the people of Hawaii. Because at the time when he came into office, there was private health care, but there really was no public system for people in Hawaii. And we had a large population of Native Hawaiians and immigrants that lived here that needed health care. So actually, that was kind of the priority of his reign with her support coming into office. So they created a proposal for the legislature at the time, and the legislature turned them down and said, no, we're not going to fund a public hospital. And so that, you know, being so brilliant and really understanding that they had a kuleana, a responsibility or an obligation to the people of Hawaii, they went out and held concerts. The king knocked on people's doors in Honolulu and said, join me in being the first sponsor of our public health care system. Right. So this is the legacy of this company that that is a steward of this land at Kalua'okau. And so when the opportunity came to rebuild the international marketplace, it was such an honor to be able to work there in that space and to really design the public space there in a way that would tell the story of that aina through different periods of time. So there's three courtyards and the courtyard, the most Malka courtyard is dedicated to Manoa and the uplands of Waikiki. And so Waikiakua is a falls here in the back of Manoa that was the inspiration behind a water feature that flows from the top level to the bottom level in that space. And that first courtyard is really like lush and green and kind of gives you Malka vibes. And then the middle courtyard is dedicated to Queen Emma and to her Ohana. And that was really important to us too, to tell that story because, you know, she hadn't been there. The international marketplace became kind of the heyday of tourism, you know, after the war. But really, Queen Emma wasn't a part of that space. So bringing her ohana back into that space in a very central way was really important. And then the courtyard that's right on Kalakaua honors not only Don Ho, but there's a statue of Don Ho there, but honors that entire time period that really Waikiki was put on the map really through radio. And then the tourism industry was started. So now the international marketplace gets to celebrate its genealogy from yesterday, today, and into tomorrow. And people that go there can either just enjoy the beautiful space because it's beautiful, or they can take the audio tour and learn about all of the genealogy of that place. 
And there's one thing in particular I'm really proud of on this project, but it was the way in which we handled the ivikupuna, or the bones that were on property. And normally in Waikiki, the standard treatment was to move all of our kupuna's EV or bones and to put it within a fenced area so they were protected. We really wanted to start to do a better job of taking care of our EV kupuna. So the EV kupuna were all kept in place at the international marketplace, which for a commercial client to give up top retail space for this type of thing had never been done in Hawaii. So being able to work with the Lineon cultural descendants to come up with a plan that not only kept all the EV kupuna in place, but gave them access to honor their kupuna whenever they needed to was a huge win on this project. And most people won't even notice it when they go to the international marketplace and won't have the whole story. But that's kind of the work that we try to do is to really integrate Hawaiian thinking, to push the canon of what it might look like, feel like, and be, and then to invite people to come and get smarter about how to be stewards of Hawaii, even if they're just shopping there at the international marketplace. So how does that affect their business? By having so much, you know, cultural. Uh, yeah, I mean, many businesses have created very creative ways in which to integrate it, but we see it more as a responsibility of not only the developer but all the businesses. Yeah, so some businesses in a commercial type environment, like a mall, will share the cost of that in the monthly rent. So there'll be an actual fee that's implemented monthly to contribute to a larger pot that then goes to cultural and community programming which I think is an awesome way to do it. Other organizations have classes for fee, right? People are creative on how they accomplish it. But we strongly believe that if you want to do business here in Hawaii, and if you want to be here for generations to come, that you have a responsibility to integrate the community, definitely the community that you're impacting, but the larger community of Hawaii, as well as amplifying all of the culture of that place. And when I say culture, we cast the widest net possible. That's one thing Hawaii is not poor in. We're in we have so much culture here, but we often don't get a opportunity to celebrate it. And we should be celebrating it in every space at every time. You know, it's just who we are as people. And I think lots of times it gets kind of put in a category or put in a box. But what we really try and encourage our clients to do is create a line item, budget for it, right? create, you know, some places that we've been able to work on have maybe old fish ponds on property, right? You have to actually make a commitment to pay for that fish pond and to upkeep it and to maintain it because that's the aina that you're stewarding and that's a part of that aina. So helping really our clients to see the value and the ROI because what we have found is that the more that you invest in community and culture upfront in the beginning phases of any project, the better the ROI. Can you share a story about that? Well, it's like the international marketplace, right? I mean, now you can go there and you can get your Louboutins and you can also learn about Queen Emma. I mean, the value of having those storied places shared is that it really is creating not only placemaking opportunities, but it's creating stories that are bringing people back over and over again to the center. You know, people want to come there because there's local food there right? There's the best national food there. The parking stalls are big because we planned it for local people to be able to come in Hawaii and have a place to park, right? So I think, you know, just thinking through how we invite our local residents into all spaces, I think is really important. And then the landowner is doing their job and being a good steward of the land. And the operator is being a good steward of the land. 
that project must have been like eight years ago. It was a long time ago. But we just did the audio tour this year. The audio tour was just released. And before that, we've had other cultural programming there. But they continue to look like, how do I raise the bar? What's the next level? What's the next iteration? How do I engage my clients more? And so now at the International Marketplace, you can be engaged in stories of the International Marketplace before even touching down there. Right? That can be a part of your journey and your trip experience before even setting foot on Kaluokau. So like multiple destination, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got a question on the, the Ivi Kupuna though. Yeah. Like, where are they? Because <laughs> I didn't even know about that. <laughs> One day I'll take you on a tour. Oh, okay, because I'm like, do so that. does that mean you got like spirit action going on? or? or I mean, we're in Hawaii. Okay. I mean, you live in oh. Manoa. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you mean by that? Tell me. I feel like Hawaii is such a spiritual place in general. I mean, it really is going back to culture. It's a part of who we are as people. I have a very unique and interesting spiritual genealogy. My dad was pure Hawaiian from Kau and grew up in many of the old ways of our kupuna. But on my mom's side, my maternal grandmother who was very close to his pure English and her dad came to Hawaii to help to open up the Buddhist temples. But he was an English man. He actually was a merchant marine for the English Navy, jumped ship in Burma, got his doctor of Dharma from the University of Rangoon. And then he helped to translate all of the Buddhist documents into English so that people on the plantation would have access to them in the temples here. And so my grandma remembers walking around each island and setting up each Hongji. And his name is Ernest Shinkaku Hunt. And he was a bishop there at Soto Mission. And so I just feel like Hawaii is a very spirited place. It's a place that there is a lot of opportunities to connect, not only physically, but spiritually as well. And one needs to only go into the mountains and turn off the noise to know that you're someplace magical, right? Or dive into the ocean and look at our reefs to know that this is a special place. And I think that people always say, like, I don't know what it is, but I'm so drawn to Hawaii or, you know, Hawaii has my heart and all these things. But people have a hard time saying what it is. But I really think it's that spiritual connection that if you're open to it and if you want to have a relationship with it, it's there. So, you know, I was listening to a workshop you were doing or something mm -hmm. and you talked about magic and then you talked about your father. Yep. So can we talk about that? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so my dad was a pure Hawaiian fisherman. So he was in the ocean all the time. He was also an alcoholic and he suffered from many of the colonial attributes that many Hawaiians did. He grew up in a very poor rural community on Hawaii Island. And he remembers going to the Chinese graveyard to get fruit to eat. And then he would always remember their name and have to come back and bring fish or something. But he was wealthy in so many ways. Right. And, you know, having the context of a PhD, I always feel like anybody can go to the university and get a PhD. I mean, you can sign up to do it. Obviously, there's work involved. But to have the knowledge that he had, like, that's not something that you can get. You're not given the opportunity to learn that. You can't just sign up for it. Like, he had the wisdom of our kupuna and our ancestors. And so, what one society might say is poor was really a lot of wealth is what I saw. And so when my dad passed away, he passed away of stomach cancer. And I had the amazing privilege of taking care of him until his last breath. But he didn't really have anything to give me upon his passing. But he had a gallon bag of wine salt that he had harvested himself. 
that I have. And when I thought about what I've learned from him and the things that he had given me in my life, I mean, there was a lot of trauma too, (laughs) having an alcoholic parent and growing up with that. But really the gift was this notion, make magic. And he would tell me that all the time. Like he would give me a hard task or assignment and just be like, make magic. And I'd be like, I don't know how I'm going to get this done or whatever it was. But it was like this total trust that the universe was going to provide whatever we needed at any given time to make any circumstance right. And one, that there was like this larger universal energy in play and that I had to believe and trust in it. And the second thing was that I was magic, that he fully believed without any doubt that I was fully magical and that I could do anything that he told me or anything that I wanted to. And so that term make magic that you saw always tell me became a huge part of my adult life in really breaking through a lot of boundaries and breaking into a lot of industries. And you can imagine as an entrepreneur coming into some of these larger rooms where we're planning and it's, you know, primarily white men in the room. And I'm like the brown Hawaiian local woman. But it didn't even cross my mind that I wouldn't be able to fulfill any task that was given to me or any challenge that came up that I needed to tackle because I had this notion and it was deep in my like, oh, that I was magic and that the universe was magic. And as long as I kept believing that and understanding that things would open up. People always ask me, how did you become an entrepreneur? And I'm like, I don't really know, actually, except that I was ready for anything that came my way. And when opportunities came my way, I just jumped every time. And, you know, when you read books about business, obviously taking risks are a huge part of business. But I didn't go to business school and I didn't learn about business techniques or theories. I just had this idea or notion in my mind that I was magic and the universe is magic and anything that I want or desired or intended was going to happen. And so that was from the gift my dad gave me. And it's not money. And that's what I love about this story is that it's a gift that we can give all of our children, right, in Hawaii, is to know that Hawaii is so much more than just a place or a destination. It's who we are. It's our lifeblood. And we are genealogically connected to this place. And the more and more we invest in this place, the more and more we understand who we are. And that magic is the piece that kind of ties us all together. So how would you define just simply magic? Magic? Wow. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. I mean, it's energy, right? It's the unseen. The word mana comes to mind, but it's even more than that. So did your father transfer it to you when he was passing at all? or No, I don't think he transferred it. He just ingrained it in me my whole life. Okay. Like it was a value, you know, a principle to live by. Did you know Ponoshim? I did, yeah. yes. So he talked about kind of like a kahuna. Mm-hmm. And he called for Auntie Pilahi Paki to come yeah. up and then he breathed his life into her. And then she became kind of the, I guess you would say magic as mm-hmm. well, right? So that kind of intrigued me because on this one, I heard you tell your story about your father before. It almost sounded like with the bag of salt, there was a transference, but maybe it was just already there. You know, what's more to this story is kind of what... Yeah. I was thinking. So, I mean, we have an olala no eo, right? Iulu no kalala ike kumu is that you're only a branch of your tree. So, I believe that as I'm sitting here, my 40,000 ancestors are in the room with me, that they are present and that I'm just merely a branch of their tree. And I've heard specific stories, like the one you're sharing of gifting ha, gifting names, gifting things. But I believe that, you know, in my story, it 
it was my father didn't really have access to kind of understanding how powerful he was and how much wisdom that he held by growing up in the old ways. In fact, it was something that he tried to turn his back on us. You know, like when I was in high school, he'd be like, take Japanese, take Japanese. And it was so annoying to me because we're here we are on the back of a renaissance and I wanted to learn Hawaiian. Like that was what was interesting to me and I was passionate about it. And, you know, for him, it was everything brown and Hawaiian was bad and everything not was good. You know, for me, I feel like it came full circle to be able to truly appreciate him for the gift that he was and the wealth of knowledge that he had and what he shared and how he could share it with us. But I don't think that him and true for many of him, his generation truly understood, you know, the magic that they had. And really, he was a fisherman to provide for his family. Like that was a survival mechanism. But actually, it was an incredible cultural practice that needs to be passed on to our children and our grandchildren. And so I think that, you know, I definitely credit my dad with getting that notion of make magic. But that was really combined with my educational experiences and having a larger context of the Hawaiian people and the Hawaiian community. And my mom's an educator. And so she always insisted on education as a key to everything in life. And my grandmother and my great-grandmother both had small schools here in Hawaii, Island Paradise School and Island Paradise Academy. And so I grew up in an environment where knowledge was valued and the continual seeking of knowledge was valued. And so it was really the combination of my parents that made me. And I don't really know if he ever understood in his lifetime how amazing he was, but I surely do. And in reflection of that, I get to pass on this gift of magic to my children as well, too. Were you close with your father? Yeah, very close. Yeah, I was the oldest. So, you know, culturally, kind of in our community, like you're imbued with like kind of being their right hand. So he often employed me to help take care of all the other siblings and and things like that. So what was something that you saw in your father that was really special to you, but misunderstood by others? Well, my mom describes it best, you know, and probably it's in and around his fishing practices, right? Like he would catch fish and then we'd go to all of the aunties' houses in Ko'u and he would drop off to all of his aunties, drop off fish for all of them, right? And that was a huge, that was just who he was, you know? He didn't have a bank account, you know, like simple things that we take for granted. He could never buy an airplane ticket, right? But my mom always said if he was born 100 years ago, He'd be the wealthiest man in the village, basically, because he had the mana to get fish and to gather from the ocean and was in touch with our Aumakua. And so to me, that's the best way to explain it is that he had these gifts that, you know, probably 100 years ago would be highly valued. And in today's society, I mean, if we just look at the fishing industry today, it's like super sad, you know, what's going on with fishing and if the world's now looking for sustainable fishing practices and talking about coral bleaching of our reefs and all the things that our traditional fishermen knew and talking about the importance of indigenous wisdom, but the opportunity to really honor people with this wisdom is still here in Hawaii. And we need to do our best to really lift up these communities and still have these cultural practices, as well as the kanaka that are the really the fire keepers of these things. What is your favorite memory of your father? 
I don't know if it's like one particular memory. I mean, I remember walking the reef with him behind him, right? Just holding the bucket, right? Like you were the bucket person. You held the bucket with all the stuff. So those were always fond memories. But he never really had the patience to teach me how to fish, right? It was always like, oh, my God, you don't know what you're doing. But watching him at our family reunions with all the youth in our family, like he was a favorite, right? Because all the boys and girls wanted to fish and play in the ocean. And he was the guy like everybody else in my family, all his siblings were playing cards and gambling. (laughs) That's another family tradition in our family. And he would do that too. But while the sunlight was up or if the moon was up, he was at the ocean. And so he was the favorite. And so I have lots of memories of him teaching the girls and boys in our family how to throw net. And even for them, like he's their favorite family member because or kupuna because they have those memories now that are kind of sacred to them as well. So uh, passing on his knowledge, I think, is really in and we got it in very small bites, like at family reunions, you know, once a year or when I was with him. But seeing him have the ability to share it with the rest of our family who no longer had access to those practices, I mean, that's a magical thing. So you were the primary caregiver for him when he was sick? Yeah, me and my husband, Dwayne. Yep. What was the most memorable thing from that? So my dad had stomach cancer, which is what his mother died of too. And he was living on Kauai. He had sailed into Port Allen one day on a fishing boat and never left Kauai, fell in love with Kauai. And so this big island boy made his home in Kauai. I have four siblings that were born there. And he just loved Hanapepe and that town and the community there. And he stayed there. But he called me over the holidays and he was like, I can't, I keep throwing up. I can't eat. And I'm like, you have to go to the doctors. Well, common in Hawaiian families is that adults don't really go to the doctor. And he's like, oh, I don't know, you know, and he's like, but I can't eat. And so we flew up there, Dwayne and I, my husband and I flew up there and we took him to the emergency room. And of course, one of the emergency room doctors was a surfer that Dwayne had surfed with his daughter. And, you know, he had also moved to Kauai and loved Kauai. But he was the one that originally found the spots on my dad's stomach. That was cancer. So we brought him over to Oahu to see like a specialist. Her first question was like, and I remember this so clearly because I was so taken aback. Are you pure Hawaiian? And he said, yes. And then the, just a look on her face, it just kind of dropped, you know. And I could tell then like we were in the transition, you know, that there wasn't anything they were going to do that because of who he was, he was, you know, probably not going to be able to fight. What did pure Uh, Hawaiian have to do with it? I don't know exactly medically what it has to do with it, but it's interesting. She said that most, no, it was an Asian lady, but that, you know, her clients that were Hawaiian hardly recovered from this type of cancer. And so I'm sure there's a medical reason why. But at that point, Duane and I decided to take him home to Haula. And because we had a place there that looked over the ocean so you could see the ocean and just make him comfortable and invite the family over. So we did that. And it was a beautiful time. It was a beautiful transition. He came to his last Nakamakai, which is our ocean clinic and at Kahana Bay and was sewing fishing nets with the kids there like four days before he passed. But my most memorable experience of that time, aside from everyone coming together and just being together, was the moon the night he passed. And it was a Hilo moon, which is like the full moon. And it just came and it was like right in the window. It was kind of early for the moon to be there. But his bed was facing the ocean. And we know that, you know, fishermen use the moon. The moon's an important part of fishing. And it was just huge and brilliant and bright. And 
it was so beautiful, you know? And it was like the moon came to get him. And all of my siblings were there and or on their way there. A couple from Kauai were flying in. But I said, everybody's coming. Your brothers and everybody's here. I said, it's your turn to make magic. And he took his last breath and he left with our ancestors, I know for sure. And yeah, it was just, I feel so privileged to have had that opportunity to care for him in that way and to have had that experience. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> I lost my father in February of this year. So it's fresh. Yeah. I mean, I know I did not realize it. Yeah. Until it happens to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like kids, you don't realize it. So. Yeah, for sure. So your father looks on you today. Yep. What would you tell him about, you know, where you're at now and so on? Well, I fully believe that he's with me. The decisions that we make today, we're making it for seven generations. Right. So I feel like I'm just standing in the space and being ready and that things are opening up. But if he was sitting here, yeah. I think he'd be super proud. You know, he was... Always excited to have grandchildren and to continue his legacy on. And my son's fish now. And, you know, carrying on that legacy is really awesome. And going home to Kau as many opportunities as we have to do that. And, you know, during COVID, it gave us an opportunity to be there for a month, which, you know, probably without the pandemic, we would have never had that opportunity because, you know, everybody was in their own crazy work, life, balance. But we got the opportunity to go home for a month, and that was phenomenal. And so I think he would just be super proud. Dwayne had posted that your son is now like learning to fish on Molokai. Yeah, my 15-year-old son, he probably has the most, always did, just had like this connection with the ocean in a different way. Of course, you know, all of my kids surf and are watermen and women, but he really is a fisherman too. So you see your dad in him? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Just the i'ini, right? Like that desire. Like, he always wants to be at the ocean. Like, he's on his way to Costa Rica in a couple hours. He's flying out with my daughter for a surf trip. But they're at the tackle shop right now getting gear for him to fish in Costa Rica. Like, you know, he's an incredible surfer and truly gifted. But he's always going to have his fishing net or his fishing poles with him, too. And, and I think that's, you know, part of the beautiful story of that is that I came from that tradition, but I didn't really have the practices. But Dwayne grew up in a community where people still fish. And he remembers stories of Auntie Rel being the best fisherwoman. And she would beat out all the men. His Uncle Bruce and her were really close and they would go together. And his Uncle Bruce is like legally blind, but always gets like choke fish. And then she was the female and she'd always bring in more fish than Uncle Buff and everybody else at the beach. And then the fish was cooked there at Kamakaha Beach. And it fed all of the kids in the community and all of the people. And that part of Nakamakai's you know, where Nakamakai came from, genealogy is like, how do we create a village around the ocean that allows kids to fully just be present with the ocean and they don't have to worry about food or anything safety, that they can just be at the ocean. And really Auntie Rel and Uncle Bruce and those kupuna, Auntie Pua, set that space up for the kids of Makaha. So my son is super blessed to be able to be a part of that. And him and his best friend, Noah Pu, are fishing all the time. Makaha gets waves in the winter. Is that Mel's so, son? Yeah, Mel's okay. son. So you can imagine them, those two, Adisoro and Apu'u, going crazy. Makaha Beach, but they're great boys, like good boys, super, have lots of aloha, take care of all of their siblings in the community there. But they love to fish, so they're fishing all the time too. So 
I mean, those practices at Makaha, although they were different than the ones in Ka'u, there's an unbroken chain of those practices happening. So living in Makaha with my husband really brought back fishing to my family, you know, because that would have probably passed with my dad. And just the little things that he taught us aside from his nets and him showing us how to make nets and throw nets and things like that. But it's really at Makaha that my children are having the opportunity to really be involved in a community that still catches fish and shares fish with each other and does that together. So that's a huge blessing. And actually, if you look at Makaha in the Hawaiian Dictionary, it says si ka'u, because both Makaha and ka'u mean fierce in the Hawaiian language. But it's so funny that it references each other when you look it up, because I think there's a lot of similarities between the communities, although geographically different, there are some similarities too. You mentioned firekeeper, right? Maybe mm-hmm. can you explain what's a firekeeper, what's the significance, and how that plays into your life? I think that we have the opportunity here in Hawaii, especially to see amazing cultural practitioners, you know, of all different ethnicities, really, that have had these cultural traditions that have just been passed down to them. And to me, those are the firekeepers, those are the people that are keeping the knowledge burning alive. And I remember one experience I had at the University of Hawaii. I was actually in nursing school after I graduated high school. But I had this i'ini or this desire to learn Hawaiian knowledge and Hawaiian language. So I was taking, you know, both Hawaiian studies and Hawaiian language classes at the same time. And for the first time ever, I saw La'au Lapa'au being offered as a class at Hawaiian studies. So I was like, I'm going to take this, right? I'm at nursing school, Hawaiian medicine. Like, yes, I'm all about this. So I took the course, had the amazing opportunity to study under Lavan Ohai, who was a cultural practitioner in La'o Lapa'o. His story of how he got to the university was all magic. He shared with us on the first day of class how he got there. And he said he was at home on Kauai reading a newspaper and he saw Kamakokalani come up, which is the Center for Hawaiian Knowledge at UH. And he knew something was calling him there. He didn't know what for. He showed up and went into the main office and... Auntie Marv Lee, who was the kind of the caretaker and the boss lady behind the counter there at the time, asked him if he needed any help. And he's like, no, I don't really know. I'm just, you know, it's kind of hot outside and I'll just maybe sit in the AC. And he talks about Lilikala Kamealehivo, who was a director at that time, another one of my kumu, running back into the office kind of frantically with like binders and like trying to get to a meeting, but she forgot something. And then she saw him and she introduced herself and he introduced himself. And, you know, she asked him if he needed help. And he's like, I'm not really sure I've been brought here. And, you know, she paused to ask him a couple more questions. And then she had Auntie Marv cancel all her appointments. And what she told him in her office was that, you know, she had been so carefully and all the kumu there, like trying to capture all the cultural practices that still exist. Aloe, all the different things, right? Hale building. But she was talking to Kekuni Blaisdell who was a medical doctor, but very much in the Hawaiian activism movement as well. And she said, you know, Kekune, I have not been able to find La'o Lapa'o as a practice and I can't bring it, you know, because I haven't found the right person. And that he told her, you know, sometimes you just got to get on your hands and knees and pray. And so they did that together. And then, you know, Lavan Ohai walks through the door one day and he became an instructor there for years and years to come. And for him, it was a breaking of a couple that his grandparents had given him to share the knowledge. But it was almost like the universal message that he needed to share the knowledge. It was time. And the things that I learned in that class just blew my mind. I dropped out of nursing school after that semester with the support of my husband. 
because I was like, what am I doing with my life? And he's like, follow your heart. Like, we'll be fine. Like, you just got to follow your heart. And so that was the aha moment for me is that I was here in this like Western discipline of nursing, studying about how to take care of people and really focused on symptoms. And then I spend, you know, time with Levan Ohai and we're talking about how to heal bodies spiritually, physically, emotionally. And and I really wanted to be a part of the healing process, not a part of the managing and fixing process. And so I left nursing school, which was kind of a big deal because it's kind of a hard school to get into at the University of Hawaii. But I ended up graduating in the same time frame with a double bachelor's in Hawaiian studies and Hawaiian language. But if not for that La'o Lapa'o class and that firekeeper and that wisdom that he shared with us, my life might have been like completely different, right? And so these people are like the special people. And when you find them, like Pono, right, you really have to take care of them and steward the things that they've shared with you and taught you. You have that responsibility. We believe in our culture that knowledge comes with power. And that once you know, you know, you have that responsibility to steward that as well. And that's a resource. So yeah, I'm super grateful for that experience. But that's like one like aha moment in my life that shifted everything in my life. I would definitely not be where I am today without having met Lavano High and having that experience. Having Dr. Kamele Hiva, you know, have the insight to bring that wisdom to the University of Hawaii so that many Hawaiian children and children of Hawaii can learn from these knowledge keepers, I think is so valuable. And that might not be something that's fully appreciated by the academy, but it is fully changing Hawaii. As I'm sitting here, I mean, just transparently, I'm sitting in this energy and kind of with the synesthesia of listening and watching, but feeling something, right? And what I'm noticing is there's a flow of energy that moves from your ancestry through the land and then through your body and then through into the kind of the future is what it feels like. This reminds me of a story that Brian Kaolana told me. Mm -hmm. So Brian Kaolana was talking about his dad, Buff, and he's like, you know, there's a water at Makaha, and he was saying he saw somebody like stuck in the rip current mm -hmm. and kind of drowning. And Brian's like, well, I got to go, I got to get him. And his dad's like, wait. He's like, why? He yells out to the guy, he's just, wait. He kept telling the guy to relax, relax, relax. And he was getting pulled, 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 mm -hmm. pulled in the rip current. And it got to a point where Brian was almost like, no, I'm going to go in there and get it. And his dad was like, wait, you know? And just as it got to the pinnacle, his dad yells to the man, stand up. And the guy goes, stands up. And what it was, was the rip current had pulled him to kind of a sandbar yeah. area. And he stood up and he walked out. Mm -hmm. And then he just kind of turned around, I think, and then like walked away. And then Brian was like, oh. But what I kind of took from that is that Sometimes the current is so strong that the more we fight, the more tired we get, right? Mm -hmm. But once you go with the current and you stand up at the right time and you just walk kind of right out, that's kind of what it seems, that's what it feels mm -hmm. like for this undercurrent in your life. Yeah, for you sure. I feel that energy. And people will say, how do you do it? What do you do? I'm like, I'm getting ready. I feel like I'm always getting ready. Like our kupuna say, waiting for um, the moment, make ready. Oh, right. Is the pigeon make ready, make ready, you know, whether it's a party or whatever it might be, it's make ready. And I feel like, yeah, I'm always getting ready. And I don't know what's coming next, but I fully trust that my ancestors have me. There's no question in my mind. And actually, part of the work to be able to stand in your energy and in your magic is to really quiet down the minds. 
and to really get in touch with feeling. And that, for me, that practice of quieting down my mind, because my father was an alcoholic, there was a lot of chaos. And my trauma around that was becoming the center in the storm for everyone. And this is something that I've worked a lot to get to. It used to be a survival mechanism to be the calm in the storm and to bring everybody in and to take care of everybody. But then it became an ego thing. After I got addicted to that chaos, right? Hello, I started a strategy firm. I take everybody else's chaos and organize it, sort it, and come up with the best possible outcome, right? And so, you know, part of the work that I've had to do in my lifetime is to really quiet down the chaos, and I've gone back to my ancestors again to do that, and but not my Hawaiian ancestors. I went back to my great-grandfather, Ernest Shikaku Hunt, and I started studying Buddhism and just the value of meditation. Because even when I wrote my dissertation, when I got my PhD, I had to do it in a coffee shop. Like I needed noise around me to actually be in focus. And so quieting down my mind and being still is still something that I work very hard on doing. And so my grandfather, it's funny, like when you don't have the answers, like what happens? And this has happened to me twice in my life, but I was challenged to, you know, be still. And so I decided that I wanted to do a trip similar to my grandfather's trip. I wanted to go back to England. I wanted to learn about my ancestors there and then follow his work to India and then to Myanmar and then back to Hawaii and maybe do his journey. But I had a mentor at the time who said that was his journey. The question you need to ask yourself is, what is your journey because of his journey? And so what I ended up doing was going to Nepal and then Tibet and hiking around Mount Kailash, which is the center of Buddhism and Hinduism. So it's their most sacred mountain there and just spending time by myself. It had been the first time in my life that I was just by myself for six weeks. And of course, obviously, I have a very supportive husband who allowed me to do that. It was incredible learning journey for me around like really tapping into my own energy and being able to just be, right, and not do. And my grandfather wrote a book because he translated a lot of the Buddhism doctrine into English for people in Hawaii. He wrote a book about meditation. And to me, it's like, here I'm like, I can't meditate, I can't do it. And then my grandfather gives me this book, like Meditation for Dummies, really. But it's like Meditation for Fourth Graders, but it was like, the really elementary version of like what, you know, you need to do to get into that space. And so again, I'm having this conversation with my great grandfather who I never met. He passed before I was born and he's teaching me and he's sharing his wisdom with me. And that wisdom becomes part of who I am and like, you know, continues to flow through my children and, and the work that I do. But I definitely feel like energy is a huge part of it. And here in Hawaii, especially our Aina is so alive that being able as Kanaka to connect with Aina, that's our most primal relationship. And we believe in our cosmogonic genealogy that, you know, the land was born first and it's our elder sibling. And then we were born and we're the younger sibling, but that we're genealogically related to each other. And so I always share this with people. And if you really want to learn more about who you are or you just have to connect with Aina, Right? It's like, what's your mountain? What's your ocean? What are the stories? And continue to learn those stories. And I continue to learn those stories, you know, over and over again. And every time I read a story that I've already read, I always learn something else or I have a different perspective that's taken from me. And so, yeah, that energy is passed down generation to generation, I believe. And that's part of the magic formula for sure. How do you pass that on to your kids? 
So Dwayne and I talk about legacy all the time. I mean, it's something that's really important to us. We don't really talk about like building our assets or things like that. But we're always like legacy. What's our legacy? What does that look like? What does legacy mean to you? To me, legacy means like how are the decisions that I'm making today impacting my 10 generations down the line, my descendants? And when I think about like current events, like for example, the outmigration of local people out of Hawaii because of cost of living, the price out of paradise scenario, I think about my legacy being how do my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren live in Hawaii in perpetuity? What does that look like? What has to happen in policy housing for that to actually be a reality for them? What has to happen in their education now so that they fully understand the context? Because all of our children here in Hawaii are being priced out of Hawaii right now. I don't care where you live or where you come from, but every single one of them is competing with a thousand global children that have more access to capital that will likely come and take their spot. So we have to be really highly conscious of this. So when I think about legacy, it's, you know, I want my children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren to live in Hawaii in perpetuity, to have that opportunity, to have the energy of this land continue to nourish them. And what has to happen because of that? So that directs a lot of the work that my husband and I do and how we give our resources to the community, as well as how we're setting up the future for our children and grandchildren, too. You know, what's interesting on that is when Pono Shem was talking to me about Antipilahi Paki, kind of sharing with him, he said something along the lines of, you got to think Hawaiian. It's not going not to teach you Hawaiian, but you got to be able to think Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I was hearing, wait, this thinking is very like ahupua-like, right? You are keeping mind of what's upstream and what's downstream and making sure that you're responsible and thoughtful on it. Yeah. Yeah? So I have like this business analogy that I use with ahupua, and it's kind of similar. I mean, ahupua was a division of land that had all the resources within one division of land to feed the community that it started. Business is the same way is that you have all these resources and your responsibility as the pole or the head of that business is to store the resources, whether it's water, whether it's money, whether it's people, in a way that brings the most abundance for the people that you're stewarding as well as for the land that's being stewarded. And so I think about that system a lot in the way that I think about my business and my life. And even when I'm doing excellence coaching, I talk about inventorying and auditing. Like, really, what is your ahupua'a? Like, what are those resources? Like, my eight children are definitely a part of my ahupua'a, right? The places that are raising my ohana are part of that ahupua'a. My grandson's name is Kia'au Onakaye Valu, and Kia'au is the place in where we live, where our home is. It's actually right past Makaha in the ahupua'a of Kia'au. But his name was given to him so that he will always have a connection with that place. He might get priced out of that place and not be able to live there, but nobody is ever going to take away his inoa and his genealogical relationship to that place. That was the legacy piece, right? So if you understand your ahupua and all the resources in it, you then understand how to steward those resources in a way that provides the most vai or wealth for the people around you. And so, yeah, I mean, the ahupua model is something that I think is very applicable to how we can solve for having our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren continue to live in perpetuity in Hawaii. Because you better believe he's attached to that aina. He's going to fight for that aina. He's going to want to live there. He's going to want to raise his family there. That's who he is. He has no choice. He's destined to do that. 
So we think about like, then what is our responsibility to that, you know, to that generation, to those keiki, right? What is our responsibility to our mo'opuna and our descendants? And, you know, part of our mission with Nakamakai is to make every child in Hawaii understand that they have something special by being here, that they're special by being here, that they have a magic and the ocean is magic. And if they're able to connect that magic together, that they'll always have a home. They may not have a house. They may be houseless, but they have a home and they can always come back to that home. And when people have an identity that's pa'a and they understand their home is and who they are, normally they're able to break through the things that they face, the challenges that come their way. So yeah, I think legacy is just a a really important part of how we need to be thinking in Hawaii as a whole, is how do our children and grandchildren, we all need to solve for this now. So even if I'm working with businesses that have nothing to do with housing, I make them aware that this is part of their koleana too. If you're going to come here, or if you're here in Hawaii and you want to make money, you know, you want to build capital, that's great, but you need to be conscious of what that means and what your responsibility is to that as well. And so that's part of the work. What's your thought on that? Having that many kids, how are you managing this? How does it play into your life and your business and so on? So there's a couple of things. One is that Dwayne and I had very few agreements when we decided to spend the rest of our lives together. And one of the agreements was that if any child in our family needed a home or was going to be institutionalized, that they would be in our home. And I feel like if every Hawaiian family, if every local family here had a similar understanding of kuleana responsibility for ohana, that we wouldn't actually have a foster care system in Hawaii anymore, that these children would be taken in by ourselves. We would feel responsible for them. And Dwayne and I truly feel responsible for all of the children of Hawaii, but for the children in our ohana too. So that agreement that we made is something that we've tried to honor throughout our relationship and create this like pu'uhonua or safe place for our children to live and to thrive in. The second thing that I do that maybe is a life hack, I don't know, but I, I don't separate my professional and personal life. And I actually think that's like a very Western concept. Like you leave your family at home and then you get in the car and you go to work. Well, my family is my work. My work is my family. I have zero separation between my professional and personal life. I will be in a meeting with a client and I'll have two kids by my side. When I used to work at the state, whether the university or at the Office of Foreign Affairs, it's part of my interview process. Like I'm a mom first, I have a family, and that's my priority. And I think that that makes me actually more qualified than what you're looking for. And I know that I'll, you know, kill all the goals that you put in front of me. But I just want to make sure like you're comfortable with that because that's always going to be the priority. And I think redefining these understandings of work-life balance, right? Because people ask me all the time, how do you balance it all? And I'm like, well, it's just life, right? I'm, you know, taking into account all the things that have to be done. Like this month alone in our family, we have seven trips, right? Three out of the country, one to Koolave, a couple to the continent. And just, you know, managing and moving 10 to 12 people at all times in the spaces that they need to be with. It takes a lot of coordination, but it's all good stuff, right? It's all stuff that is personally linked. It's all Kuleana-based stuff. So it just happens, right? It just moves, energy moves through it. And so I think that's one life hack. If it resonates with anybody that really you don't have to separate your professional and personal life. I think that's taught. That's actually put upon us. And then the third thing is that we're taught not to fail. You went to a good school. I went to a good school. That's very much of how we were brought up. It's like you 
want to get the highest grades. And I truly believe that it's failure is such like some of my biggest opportunities in life for my own personal growth have been through failures, through my aha moments, through like I had thought I had it all figured out and planned out, but I really had no idea what was going on. So I think creating space for your children and not only your children, but, you know, if you steward a business, your employees, you know, if you have stewardship over people, creating a space where they can make mistakes, where they can fail hard, fast, learn, grow. I think those have been like the highest points of growth for myself. My friend Keone Lee just recently, we were together on Maui and we're in a group, a leadership organization group. And he said, I'm so sick of safe space. I was like, wow, that's fascinating, right? Because everybody works so hard to like create safe space. So he's like, it's time. We need brave space. And I was like, it's brilliant, right? That was just like a trigger for me. It's like, how do we create brave space? And brave space allows for people to fail. It allows for these intersections between personal and professional lives. It allows us to be Aina people and business people, right? Brave space is space that really you design in a way to carry out your kuleana, And so I guess my fourth thing would be to just design the life that you love, right? Because then you're never really working. And Dwayne's been able to do this in his career from professional surfing to founding Nakamakai and myself included. I never know what I'm going to work on any given day. I open my calendar. I'm like, okay, this is on the agenda today. But I know that it's going to be part of my legacy work and part of the work that I designed. And it's important work. And so I come, I show up grateful. You know, I don't come home to like a messy house with all these kids. And of course, it's overwhelming. I mean, all the natural things. Of course, it's a mess. It's chaotic, all the things, right? But it's definitely like a magical crazy, right? It's like finding the magic in all of that and all of the abundance. To me, that's abundance. Sometimes problems are abundance, you know, and being able to be grateful. And I think that's part of the Buddhism background is compassionate and grateful for everything. So with your kids in mind, Mm -hmm. what's a story or memory that you can share that would show us who at least one of or all of them are? I don't know if there's a particular story, but I do want to say we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Dwayne's not perfect. My children are not perfect. And that's okay. And I think that many people growing up in this day and age and young mothers and parents are looking for like perfection and like these perfect pictures and posting and all that stuff. And Somebody once told me that. It's like, I want to see you more messy. I was like, what What do you mean more messy? And actually, that was Keone Lee, too. He's like, because you look so perfect from the outside. I'm like, oh, my God, it's nothing. It's nowhere near perfect. You know, and his challenge to me was be messy. And which is a reminder to me that we need to share, like, the messy parts of life, too. That's important as well, right? And so I think all of my kids are messy. They're all going through their own challenges. They all have different opportunities. I think that two things that Dwayne and I wanted for each of them was for them to love the ocean. That was really important with my fishing legacy and his ocean legacy that they love the ocean. The second thing was that they speak their language. You know, they all went to immersion school and learned their language and had that opportunity. But we try to model, right, the behavior that we want them to see. So they are all stewards of this land. And all of the work they do, Pua, Akamai, I mean, she's most relevant in my mind right now because she just graduated. And so we've put a lot of like, obviously a lot of space and attention has been paid to her. And I fly out on Monday to check her into college. And so it's like a transition period in her life. And, you know, she grew up going to the beach and dad always saying like, you leave the beach nicer than when you came. 
right? And now that she's on tour for surfing, she's decided to take that on a global scale. And so she's right now on her Instagram has like a live fundraiser for Surfers Not Street Children, which is a South African organization because she just had a tour event in South Africa. But that was her manifestation or her iteration of dad telling her, you always leave that beach better than when you come. And if you see a problem, you're responsible for that problem. You have to contribute to the solution. And so that's the neatest part about being a parent is watching the kids express, you know, the values of our family in ways that are meaningful to them or important to them. Kala spending a week on Molokai with Uncle Mac Poi Poi was huge for him. And it's so funny the things that he learned. He's like, did I get set up? I did a lot of like building fence. We're like, yeah, that's how. Like, what's that? Like, you're going to work. He's like, how can we hold the bucket when we fished? And I was like, yep. You know, it's makahana kaike, right? And so he had that privilege to learn that. The karate kid kind. Totally. Wax on, <laughs> wax off kind. Like, and he was Come just like, what? yeah. Because kids are so used to having access to information, right? Or my four-year-old being like, dad, I'm going to cut your hair today. And, you know, like just the autonomy that they take in expressing their kuleana and their creativity in different ways, I think is super brilliant. My son just left yesterday for Hokulea and he left on the day with my younger son, Hokuvelo's birthday. But Hokuvelo turned 13. His name is Hokuvelo Akiali Kahiki, which means the shooting star that guides our pathway to Tahiti. And Dwayne and I are spending a lot of time in Makua on the west side. And Dwayne was on the board of Malamalaku at the time, but we would always see shooting stars. So that's where he got his name. And Kiali Kahiki is a channel that connects Hawaii to Tahiti, our ancestral channel, or our ancestral pathway back to Tahiti. And so it was his birthday, and the year he was born, Dwayne got invited on his first sail on Hokulea, on the worldwide voyage. And so it's 13 years since Dwayne's been voyaging. This year, Dwayne blessed a new canoe for the Waianae community for Keiki to sail on and to learn and to prepare to go on Hokulea. So that legacy is manifesting. And then on the week of his birthday, his oldest brother got invited on his first journey, and he's in Vancouver on leg six of the journey now. And so it's those types of things, right? When things come together. I mean, the story behind our canoe Kumau at Nakamakai starts with like a marital fight, right? Where Dwayne's like, I'm buying a canoe. And I'm like, there's no fucking way we can afford a canoe right now. And he's like, it's broken and it can't even take it in the water. But he could see the island, right? Like navigators do. He could see what was way ahead of anything that I could see. I didn't have that vision or ability to see the vision. And and was persistent. And finally, the canoe, you know, launched this year in the water. And 900 kids alone this summer were sailing on that canoe. And so the impact is there, right? It's crazy how these things start. But that's what I feel like our life is like all these little circles and energy just intersecting with each other. And yeah, I'm proud of my kids. You know, when you said we got to be able to express the messy, right? Yeah. With eight kids and, you know family to take care of and so on, rupture is going to happen. I mean, just inevitable, right? So what's your approach or philosophy on that? The resilience, right? It's the continued healing and coming back together, right? But what does it look like to you? Yeah, I think I come back to like two things. It's like gratitude and compassion, right? And these are things that I try to remind my children, especially now we have four adult children and four underage children. So it's for all the parents that are like, oh, I can't wait till my kids are 18 and they'll be adults. Those are the worst children. <laughs> I'm just going to warn you, like, there's, I'm not going to sugarcoat it because they have nothing yet, but they know everything. Like, you, you know, you're outdated. Your wisdom doesn't matter anymore. 
And and I say that in a joking way because it is kind of ironic because we were in the same place when we thought our parents were totally irrelevant and didn't know what was going on. But especially with my adult children, right, their decisions have real consequences now. And they're learning that, right? They're failing through those decisions. And sometimes those consequences hurt themselves. Sometimes they hurt others around them. And, you know, sometimes they're really painful. And what we've, you know, kind of come back to over and over again is that we have our home in Kiao. That's our safe space. So come home, reset, get back on your feet, and then try again, right? So that's one thing is our home, our pu'uhonua, is that you can create that space for your children. And the second thing is to just try and be grateful for all those experiences, even the ones that are so painful and gut-wrenching, and to find the gratitude in that and the compassion for yourself in those things and the compassion for each other. That's sometimes the hardest thing to bridge, right? Instead of thinking about, you know, like what I would have done if I was him, just having compassion for him and his experience and letting him fully be who he is and that being okay, right? Not trying to direct or guide that. So a lot of it has been letting go, right? And letting those things happen because naturally I want to fix everything as a mom and as a parent, you want to fix everything. So letting go, allowing for safe space when people need to come home and reset. And sometimes like my oldest daughter, she's like, my next day off is Tuesday. I just need to come home. It's like, yeah, come home, get in the ocean, like just reset. And, you know, those have been our biggest tools. So again, it comes back to Aina and Kanaka, right? It comes back to the land that continues to nourish and feed us. It comes back to sitting under that mauna at Pu'ukea'au or being in that ocean at Makaha or Ke'au. And then it comes back to the Kanaka or your family, the people you surround yourself with, right? And that no matter what happens, it's always going to come back to the core family. So could you share a story of when you had a rupture with one of the kids and then how that was repaired? I have a serious one and a funny one. The funny one was my son, who was 13, he wants to be an investment banker. I mean, he told me that when he was five. I know what an investment banker is, but I have no connection with that space, right? So I was like, okay, that's funny. Anyway, he's always been obsessed with that, like money. He loves Forbes, all these things. But when he was eight, he was like, every summer we have them choose a project that they want to work on, something that they're passionate around, that we can put some resources to, that, you know, that at the end of the summer, there's some kind of like, you know, showcase to their project and he wanted to do a YouTube channel and I think it was seven or eight at the time and I was like what I didn't know anything about YouTube I was like you know I heard about all the predator stories I'm like no I don't think like we're smart like we don't have enough intelligence to really like execute that and I was like what would you do on YouTube he's like I talk about money open up my Legos and build my Legos talk about my Pokemon like he had all these ideas right and I kind of had shut him down before you know he had even got to execute it. Fast forward three years later, we're reading Forbes magazine and then they were highlighting this kid, Ryan. Of, oh, oh, yeah, does he? Oh, yeah, he goes to Midpac oh, and now he's funny. transferring to Iolani. Yeah, so Ryan's toy review, right? Mm-hmm. Basically. And my son was like, you see, like you didn't let me the opportunity. And now like, you know, it was a real legit idea. And I always think about that now when I like put my own parameters on my kids. Like, okay, maybe I can't see the island, but they see an island and I'm going to let them try at least sail to the island. So that was a kind of funny one that took us a long time to come back around. But I think the more serious one is, you know, the grief that we face as a family, right? Through all the different losses that families have, you know, through losing my dad. My stepdad recently this year, I lost in January. 
my grandmother, who was like my closest confidant, and she was just an amazing person. And then we also lost our niece. And that was, you know, for my children and for all of us, it left us all with broken hearts, you know, and to, to be in a space where everybody has a broken heart, the core family, the larger family, the community, and then to try and like take care of your own heart while everybody's working on, you know, taking care of their own hearts. It's a heavy thing to do, right? And, you know, time heals for sure. Like time has allowed us to process really all of the things, but I think at the end of the day, even with that grief is like having each other and being able to come back to each other and to share that and to find that space together has been the best healing of all, right? To hold that space collectively together, even of that traumatic event and loss, but to grieve together. You know, as we celebrate together, we also grieve together. And the grieving process and the healing process is probably more important than any other process that we do as a family. And it's messy, and it doesn't feel good. And it has all the things and all the personalities and emotions around it. But to hold space for it's important. And we're going to talk about it and through it and work through it together. And trust that each person is working through it the best that they know how to work through it at the time and giving them the compassion and the aloha that they need while also holding that space for yourself. I think that for me, has been one of the longer journeys that we've been on as a family and one that's, you know, really kind of brought us together in the healing process. I think the grief is such a big deal these mm -hmm. days. Shame is one, which is super painful. Yeah. Grief is another. I had nine friends die last year. Mm -hmm. And then my father passed away this year. And then I know as you came in this morning and that even as you're talking about, you know, losing so many loved ones, I found out last night with those fires in Maui, yeah. And my friends have, you know, evacuated and some houses have burned down and so on. So it's like to be able to, I guess, come together yeah, and hold space for each other is so important, especially in times like right now. Yeah, I definitely feel but it's that. It's like I validate you yeah. is what I mainly. I appreciate that. And I definitely feel that everybody woke up to the fires and you feel just a sense of responsibility. And you don't know what to do with that energy yet, but you feel that, right? And that's, I think, a Hawaii thing too. Well, the fire is just one piece, right? For sure. The fire is a traumatic event, mm -hmm. but the trauma lives on, right? So oh, trauma is yeah. not what happens to us. It's what happens in us as a result of what happens to us. Yep. To vicariously even watch that happening on the news or to be there and seeing it happen to your family or friends. Now people are holding this and having to protect against it and be fearful and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Some with, left with nothing is heavy. Tremendous loss. It's heavy. Tremendous. Yeah, I was curious on the, the repair piece because my daughter and I are working on kind of another project yeah. for like parent-child connection. And I'm constantly having to make repairs. So, yeah, like all the time. I know. Which is so painful. But I feel like with my older children, less is more. That's what I'm learning. Like, say less. Yeah. Just see, like, you know. And yeah, but it's definitely a process for sure. You know, when you mention pu'uhunua, right? So I've been giving this a lot of thought on like a pu'uhunua. And maybe even since you are more probably knowledgeable on it, like what's your understanding of a, a pu'uhunua and how can that framework work as like a modern day city of refuge yeah so like a pu'u is like a hill right and honua is like a piece of earth that becomes a safe 
sacred, dare I say, brave space where people can be authentically themselves. So yeah, that's what, you know, Pu'uhonua is a place where people can come to and be truly who they are and that be okay, right? It's a place that lacks judgment or anything, shame, right? All those things. It's a place of healing. My understanding was that, you know, Pu'uhonua was city of refuge. You break a kapu, you can get killed. If you can make it to the Pu'uhonua and they let you in, then it's almost like rehab to an extent. You got to do work around yeah. it before you come back out into society. Is that accurate or not really? I've heard that. And if you go to the city of refuge in Kona, right, a lot of them, a lot of that place talk about that being a like truly a physical place of refuge for people to come. But I think it also means like a couple free space, free of mind, free of body, free of spirit, whatever that might look like. And when you are free of mind, body, and spirit, then that's a real that's a time when you can really heal, right? That's the truest time that you have. That's what I found in Tibet when I was in Mount Kailash. And there's places here that give me that same feeling of being, you know, totally weightless. But to me, that's a pu'uhonua. And I think pu'uhonuas can live, I mean, there's definitely uh, national pu'uhonuas, like the one in Kona. But I think that we have the opportunity to create pu'uhonua in our homes, right? We have the opportunity to find pu'uhonuas in different vahipana or places that are peely to us that when we go to those places, we know that it's calling a higher self and it's healing. So I think that the concept of pu'uhonua is one that is a beautiful concept that can be applied in different ways. But that traditionally, yes, we've heard of the stories of physical pu'uhonuas. So what's your most important pu'uhonua? Ooh, I have a couple though, but I think that it's all the places that speak to you, right? So Makua is definitely a pu'uhonua place for our ohana. And going back to Makua over and over and learning and, and being taught by that land is one place that we go to to be and to cleanse and to reset. I think every time I and I return to my Kulaivi or my ancestral lands of Waohinu um, and Ko'u, those are times when I'm connecting with my ancestors, a time when I feel home. Actually, when I get off the plane in Hilo or Kona, and it's just Mona Ola Yap described it, it's like plugging in, like you're like charged immediately. And I think that's a beautiful expression because once you feel that warm air hit your face from, from Moko Kiave, you're like reminded of the incredible ecosystem that place is home to. And you feel that, you just feel like home, you know, even though you're still like at the airport. But being able to go to Waiohinu is an important place. My tutu's house in Wilhelmina Rice, where she lived and where she raised her children and us, is a pu'uhonua on Monterey Street. That'll always be a pu'uhonua for me. Yeah, so there's, I think, many. And I think we have the opportunity to continue to get to know these places. When you said that you had a lot of, a lot of kind of chaos and chatter going on, right? Mm-hmm. And then as you meditate, you've learned how to calm that down. What's I'm your, learning. Oh, learning. <laughs> What is your meditative practice or something that maybe people can take away from that? Yeah. So first of all, meditation, I don't think that there's one practice for everyone. I think it's very much autonomous thing. I find a lot of sovereignty in my meditation, in the invitations for everybody to find their sovereignty in meditation. I do a lot of meditations with my clients now. When I'm doing my excellence coaching, it's been a really useful tool for me to help people come to their quiet space. Every morning when I wake up, there's three songs I listen to. That's a meditation for me that starts off my day, that grounds me in my marriage, my family, and my lahui. 
And those three songs, my kids are like, oh, my God, again. And sometimes I have to, like, listen to the song on repeat for a while because it takes me a while to get, like, to the centered. That's a meditative practice. My personal song for me, it's because I have one for my husband, my marriage, and then one for me is I Will Rise Up by Audra Day. And I love that song. But that's my anthem this year. And so finding your anthem, right? Like what speaks to you, what speaks to your heart, what calls to you, what causes you to call your best self up, I think. And for some people, that's music. I think for a lot of people, that can be music, right? And that's awesome. Another meditative practice I do is in my house, I can see the ocean, but I have to go to certain places to find my ocean and my mountain to center myself. So I'm like, our house is in the middle of Pu'ukia'o and the ocean, but to get out there and to take five deep breaths, like looking at my ocean and looking at my mountain. Like that's a really quick one that can reset me. I use meditation apps too. I love Insight Timer is my favorite one because it's a community contributed meditation app. So you get to hear like everybody from my guru, which is Sadhguru, to just like people that do awesome meditations. Some mornings I'll do an Islamic morning prayer and sometimes I'll do a, a Buddhist. But I love Insight Timer because it brings all those things together. And when my, like, my baby can't sleep, we listen to like The Little Mermaid on Insight Timer and bedtime stories. Yeah, so we have, I built in our meditative practices in different ways now. And when I first thought about meditation, I thought it was like this yoga, you know, yoga experience and you have to sit there. But what I've learned over time is that it's actually your experience. And it's how you get to that place, that quiet sound of noise. And it's a muscle like everything else that you continue to grow. You mentioned your grandmother. Yeah. That and then she recently passed. Is there a story that you can share to help us to get a kind of an idea of who she was? My grandmother's name was Mary Dorothy Hunt. She was the daughter of Dorothy Poulton Hunt and Ernest Shinkaku Hunt. So she had a Puritan mother and a Buddhist father, but pure English. They were all English. She was born on Prospect Street, which is that is that like Makiki area ish in the house there with her twin sister. And she was a lover of knowledge, right? So she started an elementary school in Kaimiki called Island Paradise Academy, which was on Wilhelmina Rise. But she was also a fierce businesswoman. So she only had middle school education. She went to the Sacred Hearts Academy till eighth grade. And then she went into private sector and started to create entrepreneurial things and support her parents' business and then ended up creating a business of her own. So when I think about my business training, although she wasn't like, this is how you start a business, we never actually really even talked about business, but it was just her modeling how to run a business. She was probably my first business mentor that I ever had, although we never knew that. Like that was not something that we talked about. But I think that, you know, maybe my favorite memory of her is that, that her school had about 200 children, you know, on any given year. And she was always like, the beloved kupuna of that school, right? It was this ability to be more than just her daughter's mother and her grandchildren's grandmother, but she was everybody's grandmother. Everybody could sit at her table. I mean, I remember picking her up from the airport and she would have two strangers in tow and she'd be like, oh, they're going to sleep over tonight and then we'll get them to a hotel in Waikiki. It's like, grandma, like, who are these people? And then these people become like her pen pals. And, you know, for 20 years, they were friends. When she passed away, she told us she wanted to have a Buddhist ceremony. But she had been Catholic most of her life. My mom went to Starve the Sea. She went to Starve the Sea Church. But in her final years, she wanted to go back to Buddhism. I wanted to go back to Soto Mission for her final services. 
And so that kind of really started to pique our interest around Buddhism and like that genealogy. So it really wasn't until after she passed that I really started getting in touch with that piece as well. So that was a legacy piece that she definitely gave me. But when I started to think about what was Buddhist in my life, it was her who she was. Like she was the most compassionate person, the most grateful person for everything. She understood the, you know, the common Buddhist law that everyone will suffer. But she saw everybody as a beautiful being and lifted them up. And so I was getting all of those Buddhist teachings, but I never knew what it was called or what it was, right? It was just who she was as a Buddhist and as a daughter of her father. And that's very much, I guess, who I feel like I am as a granddaughter of Mary Dorothy Bolton Hutt, right? So that legacy piece, I think, is my most cherished memories and, and values that I got from my grandmother. I know when I initially asked you on your kids, and in the initial part where you were starting to answer that, it looked like you went somewhere mm. and then you held it back. It might have been the fact that that's caused us a lot of pain, too. Okay. It's not an easy thing, right, to take in children. And I think that, you know, I have a, a younger sister that we've, you know, had when she was 16. And, you know, at 17, we had to return her back to the foster care system because there was too much pain that was being inflicted on everybody else in the family. So although it's a beautiful thing and the concept is beautiful, like we need to take care of our own kids in our community. You know, the reality is sometimes we can't. And that's a heavy reality. Or that maybe that decision that we made inflicted pain on our own children. You know, I'm just thinking that maybe those are the things that space, you know. Have you been able to forgive yourself? I think so. I mean, I think it's a constant process, right, of forgiving. Or being okay. Yeah, being okay. Yeah. There's still so much more work to do, though. I personally have so much more work to do, right? And we as a community have so much more work to do when it comes to our children in this community that it's heavy, right? Like Super responsibility heavy. is heavy and it comes with a lot. Yeah. Sometimes when we talk about it, it sounds super simple. Like, yes, everybody wants to take care of all the kids in their family. That makes total sense. We should all do that. I mean, a part of you probably wants to do that. And then another part is like, this is too hard. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you think about Native Hawaiians and Hawaii and colonization, and up until not that long ago, you couldn't even be Hawaiian mm -hmm. without repercussion. You know what I mean? You cannot speak it. You cannot dance. Which, to me, as I was listening to this, I could kind of feel it as your father's a Native Hawaiian 100% and really entrenched in the traditional ways that are not seen or valued mm -hmm. in the modern kind of Western yeah. society. And all of that typically is held in your now. Mm -hmm. So when I heard that, I said, oh, stomach cancer in him, stomach cancer in that. Mm -hmm. That's almost to me like just pure sadness. Yeah, for sure. And then manifesting into the body and so on. On the other hand of that is, there's a kind of an incredible strength and energy that comes through that as well, right? You take yeah. the burden, you take the gift, and the gifts that come through are flowing through you so nicely and smoothly right now, like a river, like when it's coming down the waterfall, you know, like when it's, mm -hmm. it's just smooth, it's unobstructed in many different ways. And as it branches off and starts to kind of feed, you know, feeds the lo'i, feeds, feeds the farm, yeah. feeds these things, it's really nice to see. 
Yeah. I'm not sure if a lot of people see that. Yeah. But I see it. So I just want to acknowledge you for everything that you do as the caregiver of your family mm -hmm. and your culture and our place that we're here. I'd just like to acknowledge you for that mm. and I appreciate you coming on. Mahalo. Thank you. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.